Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Solo or 120 days of discourse. <laughs> Um, should I do the intro? Should I intro? Yeah, should, I, should, I, should I take us in? Should I, should I auger us into this discourse? <clears throat> Buckle up. Let's do this. Buckle up, listeners. Let's, let's <laughs> prepare yourself. Welcome to 120 Days of Discourse. <laughs> I will be your magistrate. We're going to have a horrible time. <laughs> um, uh, for, for, all of our, for all of our keen listeners out there, you may or may not have guessed that today... Uh, we are throwing our hats into the ring of the discourse on Solo or 120 Days of Solemn by uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. That is that is the most cursed name if you're a podcaster because you're going to hit some plosives <laughs> with that one. You know, sometimes sometimes on the show that like we get very serious, we get very highbrow, um, and there are some times on the show when we. Uh, do a kind of like slightly goofy movie and we all have a good time this is not either of those yeah, times yeah, this, this is neither <laughs> this is neither of those this is arguably one of the most controversial shocking horror films <laughs> that exists easily it is the first film that we uh talking about in over a year of doing it which i i don't recommend people watch if they haven't already seen it uh, or rather, I don't, I don't like unreservedly recommend it. Hopefully, by the end, you will, you will know a little bit more about whether you think this would be a film that you would want to sit down and watch, if you've never seen it before. I would, I would say that this isn't a film you watch. You know, like you, you watch Halloween, you watch, I don't know, you, you watch Martyrs, right? You watch Wizard of Gore, right? Those are movies to be watched. Uh, uh, One hundred twenty days of solemn is is a movie you have to see. You know, it's something it's something you're exposed to. Uh, it, it operates on a different level than even even the most intense horror movies. It's trying to, it's not trying to scare you. It's not trying to be scary or shocking. Right? It's trying to uh, it's trying to fundamentally upset and disturb your comfortability. It's trying it's trying to, like, stick a pry bar into the core of what you think about good society. For people who have not seen 120 days of Sodom. Would you mind giving one of your patented plot recaps? What is this film about? The question of our age is, can humanity be redeemed? When I look to my friends, my loved ones, I see the answer clear as day. Yes. However, when I see the forest for the trees, the incalculable agony forced upon society's most vulnerable people, just so that a handful of men can amass a level of wealth that would make the dragons of myth ashamed, I am forced to think on this issue with an uncomfortable scrutiny. Pier Paolo Pasolini's Salo, or 120 Days of Sodom, is this question asked by way of the Ludovico technique. Film asks us, can your heart bear the sins of our species? Even after witnessing a dramatized depiction of the worst we have to offer, can you stand up and say a better world is possible? On a material level, Pasolini's question goes unanswered. We theorize, we work, we struggle towards a better world, but yet live in the ashes of the old. Each time I view this film, I walk away angry and disgusted. This last viewing, however, something had changed. 
For the first time amidst the, the disgust and anger, I was hopeful. For such a grim text, we need to turn to an equally grim philosopher. Camus wrote that there is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn, and scorn is all the fascist characters of Salo deserve. This scorn provides me with a great hope. Like a seedling breaking through the concrete or a child being born, it's a moment of pain that will convert into untold joy. Branding our enemies with this scorn thus binds them, and, even if so small a gesture, begins the great machinations of transforming society, healing it. We have answered Pasolini's charge within our hearts. Now all that is left to do is answer it within the world. Welcome to the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is this is this is a difficult film it is a film that if you are anything like me if you are very online you probably uh encountered this film online what was it last week it feels like it feels like this was ages ago but there was a lot of of uh screenshots floating around of salo mostly because of somebody making a joke about Pete Buttigieg or the Pete Buttigieg campaign rather uh, and that is what kicked off a whole a whole week a whole days of Pasolini discourse um, because this is a film that provokes some intense reactions even a screenshot a screenshot of one frame of this film provokes incredibly strong reactions it is a film uh, set in, in the last days of an Italian fascist regime. It features uh, some brutal sexual violence and torture and four absolutely irredeemably disgusting people orchestrating it all. Where should we start? Where should we start with this mountain of discourse that is placed before us? So a lot of, a lot of people talking about Salo have just talked about the film. And I think that, that that works for some movies, right? You can do that for Halloween. You know, if you want to have Halloween discourse, you don't need to know about John Carpenter. You can just talk about Halloween. But I think that for a film like Salo, you need to understand, at least in part, the life of uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, the film's creator. So I think, I think uh, let's, let's start there. Who is... Pasolini. Where did he come from? Why did he make this movie? <laughs> okay, so uh, Pasolini is born in the early 20s in, uh, in Italy, in Bologna. Maybe one of the most kind of traditionally known as, as Red Bologna. It's very, it's very left-wing. His father was a fascist sympathizer, supporter of Mussolini. He grows up and comes of age under a fascist government. Firstly, he is drawn uh, quite strongly to, to to religion and to I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say like communist or socialist politics, but absolutely from the beginning, a anti-fascist politics. Yes, I, I think that's I think that's one hundred percent correct. Is that we need to realize that when we're, when we're talking about Salo, we're talking about a movie made by. Um, a man, and we'll get into Pasolini specifically in a second, who spent his entire life uh, living under the Italian fascist state. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's kind of part of the key of understanding Salo, is he, he watched his society fall to fascism and then remain in fascism for decades. Yeah. He started off writing poetry. He, 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 you know, he, lost, he lost his brother during the war. He... 
you know, him his family were were dislocated and were forced to move regularly. He was involved in like early educational initiatives, and then after the war, he becomes a poet. There is a collection called The Cries, um, which I think is one of his very early ones, and then then he starts getting drawn into the issue of devolution within Italy because he's interested in a in a very kind of um, narrowly spoken dialect which he starts to learn as a kind of as a way of preserving it and trying to keep alive a certain uh, culture that's in danger of being completely demolished um, but this draws him into kind of political arguments about devolution at the time the Italian Communist Party is very pro-centralization uh, Pasolini is not in the slightest um but he is absolutely sympathetic to the idea of of class struggle of of he's on the side of the working classes um in his own kind of terminology in his own way of looking at things and then there is the famous declaration that he publishes in 1947 uh, on the uh, front page of the newspaper Libertà uh, or Liberty, where he says that in our opinion we think that currently only communism is able to provide a new culture, uh, which was very controversial, be- mostly because he wasn't a member of the Communist Party. So everyone was <laughs> like, "Well, come on, put your money where your mouth is." Um, so you have this move of someone who moves into a very specific artistic form. And is slowly kind of radicalizing their politics. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair reading of the early days of Pasolini. Um, the poetry, the poetry is really interesting because I think it I think it highlights something really important about Pasolini's character, and that's that he had a hatred for the bourgeoisie that was at sometimes just blinding. I think is a fair reading. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, you know we can turn to one of his poems. Uh, the English title is "The PCI to Young People," and it contains uh, this line that I think uh, kind of kind of sums up Pasolini's hatred of the bourgeoisie. And it's, uh, "You have the faces of daddy's boys. I hate you like I hate your dads." Uh, the the poem goes on to say, "When you and the policemen were throwing punches yesterday, I was sympathizing with the policemen." Which that is an incredibly hot take, you know, for for anyone on the left, and it, this yeah, this comes absolutely. this comes from Pasolini's just kind of burning hatred of the bourgeoisie, and he saw um, he saw the students protesting at university as kind of the sons and daughters of the bourgeoisie, you know, upwardly upwardly mobile, able to stay safe in, in education, where he, whereas he saw the police as kind of an extension of the working class. Um, yep, which often sent often sent out to 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 fight and to die for you know terrible wages, etc. Yeah. I don't think the arguments there are very good. No, but, he, I mean he's yeah. wrong. <laughs> but like 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 it just it just highlights his kind of like burning hatred for kind of the the aristocratic and the bourgeoisie, which helps I think to really frame and understand the visual imagery and the visual language of 120 Days of Sodom. You know, the level yeah. of extremity, the level of depravity we see in that film is the level of depravity he saw in, in the kind of liberal apparatus that fell to fascism. But I think that yeah. um, you had mentioned before started recording that Wu Ming actually had uh, a bit more of a nuanced take on that poem. Yeah, so um, the Wu Ming uh, wrote an article about this back in 2015, arguing that really Pasolini is... It is. This is not necessarily him being a reactionary. What he's criticizing is the fact that the class position, the middle class re- rebelling, will never be a true revolution. Um, and you know, he later writes that 
because um, the poem is written in the around um, the 68 protests. There was a big deal in France, obviously, but there were protests all over Europe um, and there were protests at Italian university campuses. And so um, women kind of make the point that he isn't criticising uh, the idea of revolution. He's he's making the point that he doesn't think these good sons and daughters of the middle classes are actually going to bring about... It will be a bourgeois revolution. Yeah. It won't be... Uh, I mean, later that year, Wuming point out that he makes he writes an article in which he says that the, anti, the anti-fascist movements of the war and the 68 student movements were Italy's two democratic revolutionary movements. And that was it. So even though it would be very easy to just dismiss him as being a kind of pseudo-leftist reactionary, I think it's fair to say he probably had a more uh, nuanced and fairly sophisticated take on the 68 movement because, in fairness, there's there's an element to which he's sort of got a point. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily agree with signing with cops against students. No. Obviously. <laughs> uh, that is, that that's bad and wrong. Um, very. But, but the idea that a, a, a revolution solely of the middle classes would never be a, a revolution in total is a very is a very good point you know what's what's needed what what's needed is class uh, consciousness and class sol- solidarity and the revolutionary agent for Pasolini as for every other Marxist is not the middle classes the revolutionary agent is the working classes yeah yeah a- absolutely like the the change has to come from below. It will never come from above. And I think that's something that Pasolini recognized in that poem, even though of his way of articulating it was incomplete, if I'm going to be even about it. Mm. Um, and I think another thing, another thing that's really important to point out about Pasolini that the entire discourse seemed to have skipped over is the fact that Pasolini was gay. Yeah. yeah like, like Pasolini was a gay man fighting Italian fascism. And it- and his his sexuality often got him into trouble as well. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it might have even have been part of what got him killed, which we'll get he was into. Regularly in trouble for uh, um, brought upon charges of obscenity. He was regularly the subject of like vicious uh, rumors that would circulate in the tabloid press. All all of like the hand wringing Pete Buttigieg supporters who were trying to decry uh, this film as homophobic. Don't understand that Pasolini lived through worse than what this film depicts, right? This this film is a work of fiction. Everyone you see it in is an actor, right? It's extreme. It's disgusting. It's difficult to watch, but it's fake. You know, pa- mm. Pasolini lived under extreme oppression for for being a gay man. You know, he 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 went up against the Italian fascist state. <laughs> it it should not be overlooked. Uh, that the condition of his life is a reflection of the condition of his artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To be honest, like, it is frankly disgusting that all of the kind of, like, hand-wringing liberal media types would would try to decry this film as homophobic and not understand what Pasolini went through during his life. It's it's yeah. it's just the 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 craven nature of liberal politics that all they can be concerned about is aesthetic and and Pasolini has an unacceptable aesthetic yeah we should uh we should probably then talk about uh so his career his career is is for a very long time very patchy and very insecure yeah definitely he lives in some 
He works as a teacher for a while, making no money. He lives in some of the roughest parts uh, of the cities that he's living in. He, he constantly refuses help from the other writers that he knows. He begins to kind of gets a job in, uh, in a film store and then he starts working in the film industry. Um, he has a few kind of roles as a, a kind of bit bit part roles in some Italian films. Uh, he meets Fellini, um, which is amazing. Um, and then he starts making his own films. And then this is the very final film that he makes. And you mentioned earlier that his his sexuality and was probably, possibly, possibly uh, one of the causes, one of the factors behind his death because it's a few weeks after the, after um, Salo is finished that uh, Pasolini is found murdered. Uh, yes. He's been run over by a car. He's been beaten with a metal bar. He's, his body has been burned uh, partially. Uh, and it is still to this day, to this day, people are still debating over how and why Pasolini was killed. Yeah, yeah. Some some theories include that, like the uh, an Italian mob group got a hold of uh, the film cans for 120 Days of Sodom, and were holding it ransom, and Paolo was going to negotiate. But there's also a an eyewitness that was found years later that claimed to have said that the people who murdered him called him a filthy communist. So, so there's a lot of interpretation as to what led to um, an individual or a group of individuals murdering Pasolini. But I think it's no matter what, like it, it's it's hard to not interpret it as being politically motivated, at least to some extent. Whether there it's somebody who was trying to prevent the release of the film. Or it was somebody who was, you know, some some fascist remnant that was trying to get revenge. <clears throat> but I think it does yeah. it does kind of highlight the part of the character of Pasolini and part of the character that is reflected in the text of the film. Yeah, you know, you know more about um, Pasolini's film work than than I do, so maybe you can try and put Salo into some sort of context for. This is his final thing. This is the last yes. thing that he produces before he's killed. So how what what's the road like up to this point? Pasolini's filmography is really interesting. I think he it's it's appropriate to consider him like an art house filmmaker, even though I like I have several times in public now decried the use of that kind of terminology. <laughs> but I think that like um you know pa- Pasolini has never really been concerned with making like popularly palatable fare. Yeah. I think the biggest through connective framework in a lot of Pasolini's work is kind of him relating his experiences as a gay man. I think that is one of the strongest undercurrents in Pasolini's films. There's also a lot of religious symbology and explorations of ideas of faith and worship. And I think all of this kind of comes to a head when we get to uh, Salo. Like we see all of these kind of thematics he's been working with merge with his just sheer hatred of fascism and the bourgeoisie. And we, we get a film that's kind of an exploration of all of these things colliding with each other absolutely i mean he's he's this incredibly like i know a little maybe a little bit more about like his place in the kind of political side of things but he's this incredibly like provocative yes yeah to say the least (laughs) he generates so much kind of controversy and so much debate and and like like clearly sort of enjoyed that reputation as well as being as a kind of 
a discursive bomb thrower. He was he you know, but but not not for the sake of being provocative. Yes, be, but because I think he genuinely ha- had incredibly strongly held beliefs and political commitments, and was kind of fearless in defending them. Um, and that brings us on to Salo. We have maybe touched on this a little bit, and I very much enjoyed your very poetic plot <laughs> recap. Yeah, my non-Pracy, yeah. <laughs> maybe we can give a kind of quick Pracy. So so the film is broken up into four parts. That It's, it's loosely a riff on Dante's um, Divine Comedy. Um, but it's it's anti anti inferno circle of manias circle of shit circle of blood. Uh, those are those are the four acts of the film. the The first act sets up the kind of state of the uh, fascist occupied portion of northern Italy, where we see four wealthy men of power: uh, the duke, the bishop, the magistrate, and the president. Um, and kind of the first debauched act that they intake is they all agree to marry each other's daughters and become one intermarried family fascist unit. As the film kind of descends from there, these kind of four bourgeoisie men uh, recruit, you know, teenagers to act as, uh, teen- teenage boys and young adult boys to act as like, both their bodyguards and their soldiers, but also as uh, the the movie refers to them interchangeably as like studs and cockmongers, but they're they're simultaneously soldiers and and sex slaves. Then they kidnap a bunch of women to kind of complete the kind of tiers of oppression that we see in the film. The Circle of Mania deals with a lot of psychological abuse and psychological torment. Of the people in the film, uh, Circle of Shit is primarily, as the title would suggest, it deals with coprophilia. It also has some religious tones, some contemplation of death and mortality. Uh, Circle of Blood is kind of everything collapsing. It's it's just everything literally falling apart. The bodies of these people falling apart, their kind of makeshift, disgusting society falling apart. Thematically, the movie is very interested in how people descend into fascism, how people descend into the... Uh, unbearable corruption that fascism necessitates and the the final scene of the film uh, is a shot of two of the soldiers that had been complicit in the horrors that we witnessed throughout the film Uh, just just kind of like having a normal afternoon you know they're just having a bit of a chat and they do a little dance and it's not as horrifying as everything else we've seen and it's just it's just a reminder of how normalized these kind of terrors had become in fascist Italy and not necessarily these terrors specifically because this is a work of fiction and is designed to be incredibly intense but it nevertheless it displays like how the worst aspects of humanity become normalized under fascism and this idea of what I think the thing that's really kind of chilling about watching it is this question of what would you yes do yeah. Not because you, you know, what would you do? What would you do if you were told to do this and we will let you continue living and we will maybe let you go home? And like the kind of worrying answer is that most people will do absolutely abhorrent, awful things to to their friends, to their brothers and sisters, to their, to their uh, fellow uh, comrades because there's the chance to keep on living. Yeah, I think I think that is definitely one of the the darkest question that the film asks is can not not where do you draw the line, but could you? Mm. Yeah, 
and the film the film I, I mean I, we can't stress this enough like this is the most intense movie that I've ever seen you know like uh, n- f- new French extremity whatever it's great it's intense sure uh, you know torture porn sure fine cool special effects brah yeah. but like like this movie hits like a truck you know it is not the kind of movie that you like watch like like I, I said that at the beginning like i don't recommend watching this movie like you would like you would sit down to to put on any other film and just kind of watch it you know like this this movie is trying to upset you this movie is is aggressive like like all of pasolini's art it is trying to hurt you it's trying to force yeah. you into something different to get you to go to a place that you do not want to go because that because whether or not you like it fascism will drag you there yeah um there's there's maybe there's uh that's worth talking about um Ezio then one of the one of the collaborators one of the one of the the kind of quiet one who falls in falls kind of in love with the slave girl and they are they discovered having sex without the masters being present in the room to watch and Ezio is dragged off and is shot to death before he dies throws up his fist in a socialist salute mm-hmm. uh, and and that's your one moment of kind of resistance and then is replaced by one of the people who's been subject to all of this abuse who then kind of gleefully takes over and it you know throws themselves into this into into the role of being uh, a collaborator yeah yeah it, it's also worth noting out that the you know the reason Ezio ultimately gets captured and killed is he was betrayed by by another one of the victims, Griselia, and mm. Griselia is spared for mm-hmm. for that uh, betrayal. You know, like, and that's like this this film is disgusting. It's horrifying, horrifying, and not. I think we talked about this in one of the earliest episodes of HV, but we kind of talked about the distinction between like the space the space involved of fictive horror and the space involved in real horror. And yeah. this this movie is trying to drive drive a semi truck through that wall through that space, um, not not in what you're witnessing because what you're witnessing is fiction, but you're witnessing fiction by way of the very real mechanics of of well meaning liberal people sliding in to the absolute depravity of fascism. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I I really like I really like the way that there's a great quote from Pasolini that I I found where he talks about this film as an expression of the anarchy of power. The absolute power is not kind of rigid authoritarianism. It's the ability to be kind of utterly chaotic, but also be completely secure in your position. Mm -hmm. So you can do literally anything to these people. Uh, You can fulfill all of your basest, most kind of perverse hedonistic desires. Um, so it isn't a kind of rigid totalitarianism where you reduce the the other to the automaton. What you what you can do is you can just destroy the other. You can you can pull them apart. You can like smash all semblance of order. But at the same time, you never put yourself in danger. Yeah, and I mean, like that's that's true of this film. I, I think that's a that's a great. Uh, analytical framework uh, with which to analyze uh, a text as intense as this. Why do you think this got to people so much? Why do you think uh, one of those one of those darn 
Chapo boys posting <laughs> a picture from Salo uh, got to people so much. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spend any time reading into like Chapo Trap House discourse and the motivations or whatever. I'm not particularly interested uh, in that side of the conversation. What I'm more interested in is that Pasolini's film is intense, but Pasolini was not uh, a delicate artist for for the film Salo. You know his, his other works. Um, you know, uh, much a much more gentle hand <laughs> is what he had as a filmmaker. But for for yeah. this one in particular, like he, he he took the gloves off and he went absolutely full force. And I think, you know, his his discourse is ultimately correct. You know, the the, the creep into fascism. We'll see people that used to be upstanding members of your community. They used to be the the fun loving uh, uh, teenage boys down the road. Will become goose-stepping fascist soldiers engaging in depravity that you never knew possible. And Pasolini's trying to communicate that in this film. And Pete Buttigieg's campaign, while not quite as evil as Italian fascism, nevertheless represents a, a step in that direction, right? It's it's part of, like, the, uh, the one of the key features of liberalism is, it, is it's nothing but politics of compromise to the right, and that's why today's liberal candidates like Biden and Buttigieg are pretty much just Ronald Reagan. Well, yeah, and I also think that it's it's a mode of politics, and I've 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 talked about this so many times before. Uh, it's a mode of politics that valorizes f- appearance yes. over content. Mm-hmm. So if you appear to be a a a good person you have the right rhetoric you say the right things but we know that like there is no content there there's a kind of hollow emptiness where there should be some kind of political ideal some political uh stance some some actual material effect Mm -hmm. it's it's politics abstracted of politics and so what that creates is that does create if you look at the if you look um you know, I've been writing a lot about Gramsci lately. If you look at Gramsci's political work in the wake of the rise of fascism, it was aided and abetted by a vacillating series of Italian governments yeah. from the centre and centre-left who thought that fascism would be a good tool to keep the radical working classes in check. Mm-hmm. So not only do you take the money of industrialists and and of huge wealthy billionaires in in your beautiful wine cave fundraiser <laughs> but then you you authorize the military to go and break up strikes and then you put money into uh getting demobbed soldiers into um the the fascisti death de, uh, you know uh, the 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 squads of of fasci the, the yep. black clad uh, foot soldiers of mussolini this is exactly what gramsci was writing 100 percent, yeah and i think and I think centrist liberalism has proven itself to be completely hollow and desperately pivots to the right because the insurgent right, the, the, the you know, we've got eugenicists working in 10 Downing Street. You know, yeah. they were just fired today and British, you know, this week and British media discourse was like, oh, well, how can you criticize this young man for his views? What about his freedom of speech? Blech. And And nobody saw that as the writing on the wall. 
right? The the kind of canary in the coal mine, which has been uh, going for, for years now. It's because it's a politics completely empty of content. So what does the right do? The right will, will automatically fill that space. And what it does is it makes the appeal to libidinal interests of power. What does it offer? What, is, what does fascism offer? It offers... It doesn't offer um, material benefit. What it offers is the potential to make the other suffer. That's what it offers. And and let's be let's be blunt. Let's be clear. The appeal of Trump, on its base level, is the chance to make others suffer. There is a direct line. There is a direct connection between, you know, alt right chuds and and frog Twitter talking about owning the libs online, and tearing children out of their mother's arms at the U.S. border. There is a direct line between that. Wasn't there that kind of ghoulish story about Stephen Miller who was who was talking about how much he wants to disincentivize people trying to trying to cross into America, where he was like, this is the most important thing in the world to me. You know, you've got to make them suffer. And it's like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is why you should you should be aware of Sallow as yes. something more than just um a meme torture pornography or as a yeah. meme um it is a scream in the face of a politics that is uh completely collapsed and atrophied and and fallen in on itself that can offer nothing but managed to decline into obsolescence, pain and suffering. Uh, and that is so quick to turn and offer the reins of power to smooth talking fascists yep. who will make you do unspeakable evil and you will do it convinced you're serving your country. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think you're, you're absolutely right when you note that liberal politics is nothing but aesthetic. You know, like Pete, Pete Buttigieg is the respectable gay, which is why he is allowed to, to enter these higher echelons of power. If he was a radical queer, he would be denied. And Like Pasolini. Like, like uh, <laughs> a certain filmmaker, yeah. And I think, um, part, I, think, I think you're describing this film as a scream in the face of, of these declining structures of power is, is totally apt, right? The, the, the kind of like liberal pundit class who got so upset at this film being invoked in the political discourse, they're upset because this film is a primal scream that they can't contain. It's aesthetics that they can't contend with. And they have no framework with which to handle this because this film stands for something. And that is, that is the one thing that they cannot do is have a valuable belief to stand on. They can only have aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And when you're, when your aesthetics are this extreme, it, it's it's going to shatter them, right? Like none of them approached this with even an ounce of nuance. None of them approached this with an understanding that Pasolini was a gay anti-fascist. None of them even bothered to to just. And I mean, like it's not it's not like it's not like Pasolini's obscure. Like this movie has a Criterion collection, and I think it's also got like a, an official Penguin release. You know, like like 120 Days of Sodom isn't some like obscure. You can only get it in a an unmarked brown paper bag in a back alley, right? This is this is a very popular art film. Yeah, the temptation they they try to reduce it down to basically on the level of pornography, you know, as something kind of shameful and something that should be kind of criticized and and negated. But uh, what's amazing is the way that 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 Sally sort of like 
you know it just sort of resists all of that yes um, yes because anyone who who knows anything about it not even anyone who's particularly political but anyone who is kind of interested in film would be able to read this and go actually you're completely missing the point <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like spectacularly and you're doing it because you can't admit that really you might be dangerously close to those collaborators depicted on film and the whole and the whole point of the film is to make you examine yourself and to go how close are yes. you to being willing to do those things if somebody powerful offered you power how would you use it i think and i think that is absolutely the reason why these kind of like blue blue check uh, media liberal types could not stand the the host of chapo or one of the one of the hosts of chapo trap house tw- tweeting out um one of the tamest uh, uh stills from the film not even one of the scenes that would have anyone wince you know and it's and it is absolutely because of the thing that you just said that i have completely forgotten about <laughs> <laughs> deleuze and uh deleuze and guattari said that the the, the question of fascism is not how does it work the question is why why does it succeed mm-hmm. and they said the issue is not that it's not that people are subdued no 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 the issue is that the people desire their own repression you know Foucault said that um, anti-Oedipus was a guide to anti-fascist living but it isn't necessarily about destroying the fascists in the street but it's about destroying the fascist that exists inside your own head mm-hmm. the voice that says that what you really want is you want to be told what to do, to told what to desire, told how to live. Why? Because that frees you from the burden of having to be involved in the life or death material struggle that is the political, that is the social. And that's that's absolutely at the key of this film. So 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 much of this film is about the discourse of domination and oppression and domination minus consent. You know, like the, that's mm. that's so close to the crux of this film is people turning over their power for for the peace of not having personal responsibility, and that's that's mm-hmm. kind of I think part of what what we witness with kind of the uh, the pundit class who who just kind of spent a week straight wringing their hands over this film being invoked. You know, like they they yeah. they can't they can't handle the, this this encounter. They can't handle uh, this look in the mirror. Right, um, one hundred twenty days of Sodom functions as like this is the darkest mirror you can look into because you will see yourself slipping you will see yourself in the faces of the foot soldiers that allow this evil to happen that is why this movie is so intense this movie isn't so intense because of what it depicts because what it depicts appears in a serbian film what it depicts appears in i spit on your grave what it appears depicts in cannibal holocaust right these are these other Mm -hmm. high water marks of intense horror you know, the, the same visuals are present in 120 Days of Sodom. But what sets 120 Days of Sodom apart into a league of its own is is the fact that, like, the film is a self-insert character for you. You know, it will ask you, why aren't you resisting? Like, that's that's the tension of this film. That's what makes it so unsettling. And I think that that's why a lot of these center pundits reacted so poorly to this movie being invoked is because they know exactly where they'll fall if they ever get asked this question. 
Yes, and they they would never want to admit that because that would mean admitting that what they say has consequences and is important. Because for a lot of these people, politics is kind of like, it's an aesthetic game, right? That's what it is. The, the kind of liberal, mainstream, centrist crowd. It's an Politics is an aesthetic game. So the, the, the reference to Salo is just in bad taste. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you weaponize the idea of, uh, of, of uh, a marginalized identity. You accuse them of being homophobic, ignoring the fact that it's made by a, uh, a, a gay filmmaker and an anti-fascist and a, and a, and a, and a radical. And you, you turn this into, oh, it's just an issue of bad taste. It's, it's how, how crass they're being when in fact you know the the great obscenity the great you know aesthetic disgust is is fascism itself you know it's an aesthetically uh, like what they do is 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 not just morally horrible it's aesthetically horrible and those two things are intimately connected with one another yeah yeah i I couldn't i couldn't agree with that any any more strongly than I do. Uh, we wanted this to be a shorter episode, and we're already approaching uh, normal episode lengths. It's hard. It's hard to, uh, you know, we were planning on just you know a, a tight thirty minutes for this one, but it's hard when you're talking about 120 days of Sodom <laughs> to to have quick discourse. Um, this this film does not want you to have quick discourse. I think we've made some. I think we made some pretty good points there, and brought out some some like I I watched. I rewatched quite a bit of it today, and um, like it gets to you, yeah, <laughs> in a in a really kind of profound way. It it it. This is maybe one of the like uh, this this one got to me. This one got to me quite deeply. It gets under your skin, uh, which I think, yeah. There's a really endearing story that apparently the um, the actors would all like play football yeah. and would make massive meals of risotto and they had a really nice time working <laughs> on this film. And you know, Pasol- and Pasolini is, in- is is an incredibly gifted aesthetician. You know, the film beyond gifted. Like, yeah, it's made by somebody. It's made by somebody who has a real gift for visual composition, storytelling. Is truly a master of the medium here links to Dante it links to the genealogy of morals but it's it's maybe one of the most kind of profoundly like li- disturbing I am disturbed by this film in a way that I don't think I've been in a really long time Same. yeah and I think that that's that's good that's what the film wants that should be your reaction you should be walking away with this film with you know years worth of introspection and questions about your relationship to power you know, I think um, yeah, a hundred percent. If I have if I have one parting thought uh, about this film, this is something that I said in this month's book club episode, but I think it, it bears repeating: is that in in a just world, in a better world, Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom would be seen as a problematic and troubling movie that is difficult to watch and answer and asks rather a lot of complicated questions. Um, however. In that very same world, the Marvel movies would be seen as so morally reprehensible, they would be dropped to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in a lead-lined vault never to be seen again. <laughs> showing, showing an Iron Man movie to children would be seen as being so inherently immoral that it would be a crime. You know, those, those films are about the glory of war profiteers, about the glory of, of a state largely controlled by a giant corporation. Horrors that we witness in any given Iron Man movie or any given Batman movie out, outnumber and outweigh what we witness in Pasolini's film to, to a degree that is honestly startling. Yes, yes, the visuals in, 
120 Days of Sodom are infinitely more disturbing. But when you get down to what these films are about and what these films are here to do, you, the the Marvel movies have an ideological function that wants to numb you to the status quo. They 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 serve to normalize. Um, a company making a satellite full of 10,000 death-dealing drones that orbits the planet and only one man can control it. Whereas Pasolini's film wants to destabilize and denormalize that very same descent into the fascist impulse. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going out uh, by, by drawing comparisons between uh, Solo or 120 Days of Sodom with the uh, <laughs> Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there goes my career. Uh- yeah, I mean that that I I R.I.P. to your mentions when when this episode drops. <laughs> the the Marvel the Marvel fanboy uh, like but to be real, if this means that you end up uh, having made some Marvel fanboys watch um, Pasolini movies, then well done, basically. <laughs> this has been this is there has been some. Uh, discourse here but I think we have you know hopefully you again I don't know if I would recommend watching this I think I think I think you have to decide for yourself what your kind of what your boundaries are what you're what you're okay uh, watching Um, so I, I know there are lots of people who who listen to the show who maybe go you know I'm not really that into really extreme horror if that's you probably don't watch this but if you really want to watch something that is going to going to maybe change the way that you think about yourself and your politics and your involvement in the world and is really going to creep you out, then this is a great, great piece of work. Yeah, um, I, I would I would recommend this movie, but I think I would have a major caveat that this isn't a movie to watch in a single sitting. This isn't this isn't even to be properly considered the way we usually consider movies and films, you know, like this is this is more experiential. It's more intense. It's going to creep into parts of you that you are uncomfortable with and it's going to unsettle you. So if you decide to watch the movie, be ready for that. And then keep in mind that, like, you can always hit that pause button. You can always come back, you know, like the first time I watched this movie, I had to go through it in chunks because it it hits like yeah, a truck. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I had watched it. I'd watched bits of it before today. And so today I went back and I watched the things which I hadn't seen before. Um and I think that would be the only way that I would have been it. I sitting down and watching the whole thing like godspeed cuz it's it is a, it's a cinematic sledgehammer. And I can't stress enough that it's not just the visuals. It's how it how it portrays normal good people good in, in massive quotes, I guess, slipping in to, to the absolute nightmarish depravity of fascism and how that gets normalized on, on like a sliding scale that makes it so disturbing. You know, like like um, I mentioned I Spit on Your Grave, I mentioned Cannibal Holocaust, I mentioned a Serbian film. Those movies are intense. Yeah. Those movies are difficult to watch. Those movies are hashtag problematic. This movie makes all of those look like Beetlejuice. <laughs> you know like i i would recommend approaching this movie with that kind of level-headed caution and thanks for listening to the- <laughs> there's no there's no good outro for this one no um insert insert joke here
Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>